If you are familiar with the Marvel comics, the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know the name Thanos. Uh, maybe even if you haven't seen the movies, you might know the name Thanos. He, he is a big, ugly monster of a dude. He's like purple or blue or something, and he's big and strong, and he is inevitable. Like, this is, this is his line, right? He is, he is the one that must be reckoned with. Nothing can stop him. He's, he's intent on bringing death to 50% of the universe's population. And, and, and when he says, I am inevitable, he says it with such conviction and, and with such force that you, you really start to think this guy is unstoppable. And then when you see him take on like Iron Man and Captain America and like one superhero after another, and he's just like taking them all out, you start to think maybe this guy is inevitable. It's a, it's, it's a statement that he makes, his phrase that kind of sits in your head. It doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. It's scary, not, not because he actually is inevitable. I mean, first of all, that would be a terrible movie. And second of all, it's just a movie. He's not a real thing. So obviously he's not inevitable. But it's scary. It works. It gets into our minds and into our hearts for, for what reason? In part because we know that there are things that are outside of our control. It, it taps into something that does match our lived experience. You know that bad things happen. There are things that are outside of your control. No matter how much you plan, no matter how much you work, there are things that actually are inescapable, unavoidable, and sad and hard. So we, we have to do something with that. So, so on our darker moments, we make horror movies about, you know, death being inevitable and the bad guy's going to get us all and we're all going to get taken out. In our, in our lighter moods, we make jokes about things being inevitable like death and taxes and in-laws, you know, you know the jokes. So, so it's like we, we, we know, we know that this is a reality and it, it frightens us, it works on us, it touches our lived experience but what actually is inevitable? What is inescapable reality? What are the things that will come to pass no matter what? They're the things that God himself has spoken. What our God has declared will come to pass. It must Come to pass. As we come in this passage in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus interacting with his disciples is now beginning to lay out for them what is in fact inevitable, what must come to pass. And as we approach Easter week, this coming week, the Passion Week, as we walk into it, as we get to see a sister get baptized this, this afternoon, this could not be a more timely reminder for us. What are the things that are true, that are unbreakable, that are inevitable? Jesus shows us at least three in this passage. The first one is this. It is inevitable that Jesus must suffer. Jesus must suffer. This is a chain of events that's been, that's been put into place. Things have started to unroll ever since the incarnation. When Jesus took on flesh, when he was born, this set of events was put into motion and it is an unbreakable chain. It's like water. When it's released from the clouds, it's going to fall to the earth. When water in the lake is exposed to temperatures below freezing, it will freeze. It, it, this is what must happen when Jesus takes on flesh. He says this in verse 21. Look at how he words it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. He began to put on display to make it clear for his disciples. He doesn't want any confusion. 
No more like he's talking about yeast and, and they're thinking about lunch. No more of that. He's making it clear to them. He's putting it on display that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus, as I said, is going to show us three things that are inevitable, three things that must happen. For each one of them, there's going to be a what and a why in our time together. The first what is this, what Jesus must suffer. If, if we're thinking about the reality that Jesus must suffer, what is it that he must suffer? Well, he says he's going to be denied by the religious elites. He says he will be rejected by, he will suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are the three groups of religious elites, the powerful people in Jerusalem who make up the, what's known as the Sanhedrin, the council, the people that rule in Jerusalem, that rule over the temple. There's going to be some Pharisees, some scribes, some Sadducees, all the different groups that we've seen so far that have opposed Jesus and hated him. They're going to come together in Jerusalem and they will stand against him. He will be rejected. Jesus will will be rejected by the powerful and he will suffer many things these are Jesus words he will suffer many things what kinds of things did Jesus suffer I mean there's there are there's the obvious right we know we know that Jesus is going to suffer on the cross and he's going to endure physical torment on the cross we understand that and we need to think about that. We need to let that reality sit on us. But at the same time, it's important that we remember that Jesus Christ is incarnate. He is a man. He took on flesh. He suffered in this experience all the things that you or I would feel as suffering in this moment. So as he goes into Jerusalem where he must suffer, remember this is, this is, this is Palm Sunday in our calendar. As Jesus is going to go into for what's called the triumphal entry, as he goes into Jerusalem, there's supposed to be the people are supposed to come out and greet him. The people of Jerusalem are supposed to welcome him. Instead, there's just a cohort of people that he's traveling with that are going to come with him. But, but it's like, I, want, I wonder what the emotional toll would be on Jesus. It, it's one thing to know that people are going to reject you. But there's got to still somewhere be some kind of like, it can't be, Right? Here's, here's Jesus going into Jerusalem and, and the people are supposed to greet him. This is his entrance to his city where he's supposed to reign as king and high priest and no one's, he walks into the temple. No one even notices. He turns around and he leaves the city again. A, a sign that he is to be rejected. Just, just not long before this, Jesus, in, not in Matthew's gospel, in John's gospel, John tells us that he had been at the tomb of Lazarus where his friend had died and Jesus stood outside the tomb and wept for his friend. And I can't help but wonder how much of that weeping, that emotional experience that he's going through in that moment is seeing in Lazarus's death and his friend in the tomb the reality of his own imminent rejection and death. In, in Matthew's Gospels, we go on when Jesus is rejected, he's going to stand outside the city and look at the city of Jerusalem and weep over it because he is emotionally torn up. He wants to gather them in like a hen wants to gather her chicks. He, he wants to save them, but they have rejected him. There is emotional suffering going on here for Jesus as one who is rejected. He also experiences the injustice the suffering of injustice from the hands of his people. Do you know the experience of suffering injustice? Our, our culture has made a lot of injustice 
over the past little while, rightly so, it is a terrible form of suffering. Jesus goes through this. He he goes through this as one who has only ever done what is right and spoken what is true, and yet they take him before this mock court. They're going to take him before a court that they just made up. They called it an instant. Before his own people and before the Gentiles, he is tried. It's not really a trial. Even the guy who's going to declare, okay, fine, go kill him, says first while he's innocent. This is a gross miscarriage of justice. And Jesus is falsely accused. He's got trumped up charges. The very system that's supposed to protect him has been turned against him so that he knows suffers the experience of injustice in a body, feeling the emotional torment of this. And then comes the physical torture, the beating, the whipping, the carrying of the cross, the nails through his flesh, the thorns into his head, the spear into his side. In a way that would cause trauma to any human who ever lived. He is not simply beaten, but those who are beating him are mocking him and laughing and getting enjoyment out of the reality that as he is suffering, it is bringing joy to others. Do you know what that would do to someone mentally? Jesus sums it up here. He says he will suffer many things. And all of it will end in this. He will be killed. The Son of Man, Jesus, will be killed. Killed, he will die on a cross in Jerusalem where all the prophets must be killed. And all of this is inevitable, it is fixed. Did you catch the word? There's a couple words that are worth focusing on here. Verse 21 From that time, Jesus began to display. Which means he's going to say it again and again and again to them. He's going to say it over and over. He's going to make it as clear as he can. Because over the next little while, there's a short window where they have to get it. Because it is going to happen. So he's going to keep making it clear to them that these things must happen. He must go to Jerusalem. This is a divine must. This is a must from God. This is the commission, the commandment. This is the charge that he's been given from God that he must fulfill unless the word of God will be broken. What would compel Jesus to go and to suffer this way? Why would he say it must happen? Peter wants to know this because Peter has witnessed Jesus' miracles. He's witnessed Jesus' teachings. He's seen Jesus' power. He's seen what Jesus can do with a word. He can calm the wind and the waves. He can can give life to the dead. He He can make the lame walk. He can make the blind see. Why is it that Jesus would suffer? Doesn't he have authority? Doesn't he have power? Can't he do something different? Why? Peter doesn't get it. So he, in verse 22, takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. It's bold to rebuke Jesus. He's probably still a little high off the fact that Jesus just said, you're the rock. So he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, what they need to clear up here is why. We thought about the what of Jesus' suffering. Now we need to think about the why. Why is it that Jesus is so dead set on going to Jerusalem? Why does he say these things must happen, that he must suffer? We need to be clear. This is a dramatic turn, right? 
Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. That's a dramatic shift. Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven, get behind me, Satan. Like, like this is, even Jesus' body language, he even turns his very body language in the narration of Matthew's gospel is one of turning from Peter. He's turning away. He is repulsed by this suggestion. And the language is so strong. Get behind me, Satan. It's the same verb and same address that Jesus used in chapter four when he actually dismissed Satan who was physically there tempting him. Same language. Peter is operating with a human mindset, with a human vision for glory and ascendancy. He did not want Jesus to suffer. He just wanted easy glory. Which if you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in chapter four, it was the same temptation. Listen, 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 Jesus, I know you're come to be king. I can make you king over every nation. Just worship me, you don't have to suffer, just worship me. The fast track to glory apart from the cross is the temptation of Satan for Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says, I must, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Why? Because Jesus has come to fulfill the Father's will. What does that mean? It means that he has come to forgive our sins and to fulfill scriptures. He came to forgive our sins. Do you remember? I said this was all set in motion from the time of Jesus' incarnation when he was born. In Matthew chapter one, even before he was born, the word was given to Joseph. He will save his people from their sins. The only way we can be forgiven of our sins is through death, through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood. Jesus, by coming, was committing to going to the cross and dying. He must forgive sins, and in order to do that, he must fulfill scriptures. He must fulfill the scriptures, the will of God, from places like Isaiah 53, which Femi started our service with this this afternoon. Isaiah 53 and verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was stricken for the transgression of my people. For the forgiveness of sins, he must die. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence, there's injustice. There was no deceit in his mouth. This is what he will suffer. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him, he has put him to grief. Jesus knew this. The reason the Messiah died was to fulfill the Father's will, to fulfill the Father's plan for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of the world. So you see what what Peter is suggesting then He says, Jesus, there's a straight line to glory here. You don't need to suffer. He's actually suggesting that Jesus circumvent the plan and the will of the Father and the fulfillment of scriptures and the atoning death for the forgiveness of our sins. See why that starts to line up with what Satan would want? But Jesus, Jesus does not operate with a human vision of glory and he will not let us operate with a human vision of glory either. 
That's why there's this one other reason here why Jesus must suffer, and that's this. He must suffer to set an example for us, which leads us to the second thing that is inevitable. Jesus must suffer. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing that's inevitable from this text is that we also must suffer. We who follow him must suffer. I think some of you like uh, cute animal videos. You know, you go on YouTube or whatever, you can find cute animal videos. I think Yotan does. I'm, I'm, I'm with him. You know, I was watching, uh, I watched a couple of cute little videos this, uh, this week of ducklings. I like, for some reason, that's, I find that really fun. So like, the, the, you see the ducklings and they all come in a, in a row and they all come after the mama duck and, she's, and she, I, the videos that you see are always the funny ones, right? Where she like jumps off a bridge and then the little ones have to figure out how to follow her. They, she jumps off the side of a river and, it, and it, a, a bank into the river and it looks really easy for her. It's just a little hop, a little flap of the wings and then everything's safe. And then you look at these little tiny balls of fluff and they're like, oh, they're so, and they've got like no wings and no feet and they're just like these little balls. And for them now, to go where the, where the mother just went, all of a sudden it looks like a, a plunge into certain death. They're just like, woo, off the cliff. And you're like, are they going to make it? I don't know. And so you, of course they make it, but this is the thing. They always know to follow their mother because as scary as it looks, as much as it looks like certain death to us, the reality is that the alternative of staying behind for one of those little ducklings to be left alone without a mother in the wilderness is a far more dangerous proposition. Jesus calls us to follow where he goes. So verse 24 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will Find it. I said there's a what and a why. We want to start with the what again. What? What must we suffer? Jesus describes it in this way. He says you must deny yourself. This is a this is a self-chosen kind of suffering where you deny yourself, your own impulses, your own desires, your own selfish selfishness, and you live for the good of others. So that self-sacrifice becomes a way of life for those who follow Jesus. We live according to the will of another, that's God, for the good of others, that's our neighbors, in a way that costs us. That's just normal stuff. That's the everyday life of believers. That's the everyday life of Christians. So you go to your job, and you work. And you work for the glory of God, not for the approval or the praise of people, you work hard. You're the hardest worker. You're the honestest worker. You are denying self, prioritizing others, laboring to do your job well for the good of others and the glory of God, rather than seeking your ease in your work. Maybe you are a sibling. You have brothers. You have sisters. Self-denial must be for you a daily practice in your home, giving up your rights, serving others. Hey, they left a mess. I can clean it up. 
not taking stock and making sure, even as a roommate, you know, well, it's got to be 50-50. I'll do my bit, you do your bit. But self-denial means I will go above and beyond. I will go the extra mile. This is the way of the cross in daily decisions that we make as believers, as those who follow Jesus. We must deny ourselves. But what Jesus is calling us to is more than that. He says you must deny yourself, but you also must take up your cross. If the one is self-chosen, this one is others chosen. No one chooses to take up a cross. It is an instrument of torture and suffering and humiliation and death. The only reason you have a cross is because someone else has given it to you. This was not a phrase. Like, we have phrases about taking up your cross. Oh, we all have our crosses to bear, and, you know, it's just a cross I got to bear. These kinds of phrases that we throw around. This was not a phrase when Jesus used it. Like, like Peter, you know when Jesus named Peter, and the name Peter was not a proper name ever before Jesus named Peter that. It's like, in, in English, like, The Rock was never a name until Dwayne Johnson. And now all of a sudden, it's like, hey, The Rock, like, sounds, sounds good, right? Like, Peter was not a name. But Jesus made it a name because he gave it significance and he gave it to Peter. And likewise here, he's saying, take up your cross, which was not a phrase. This was not something people would talk about. This was shameful. It was humiliating. It was suffering. But Jesus says, this is what it means to be a follower of me. Take up your cross. Be prepared to be rejected humiliated, hated. See, see, both of these things can, can be true, right? Denying yourself, taking up your cross. Take, take, for example, friends. As you choose to follow Christ, you may need to choose to eliminate some friends from your life because of the influence that they are on you. They take you away from God rather than enabling you to follow God. So that's a denial of self in one sense, but it could go the other way as well. It could be a taking up of your cross. You're trying to love your friends as a Christian, but now that you're a Christian, they hate you and they mock you and they belittle you and they run you out of the friend group. It could go either way. One is denying yourself. The other is taking up your cross. But at the end of the day, it means absolutely you must be prepared to actually die. I was reading um, Open Doors USA. They did a, their World Watch List report came out for 2021. In, in North Korea... Of the estimated 400,000 Christians, between 50 to 70,000 of those who have not been executed are currently in prison camps for being a follower of Jesus. We must not let the privilege of being a Christian in North America blind us to the realities of what our brothers and sisters are called on all around the world to endure for simply saying, I follow Jesus. In the top 50 countries ranked for persecution, the top 50 countries alone, about 11 Christians are killed every single day simply for being Christians. To try to avoid suffering for the name of Christ is to try to avoid the inevitable. It will happen. If you follow Jesus, suffering will come. To try to avoid suffering is in some sense to try to avoid being a Christian. 
So, so what, does this, what does this mean? Like, what can, I, what can I expect for our sister who is getting baptized today? The call to follow Jesus, to identify with Jesus, means that you will need to deny yourself. You will need to sacrifice privileges that you would like to have. And it means taking up your cross, being prepared to endure whatever may come for the sake of being one of Jesus' people. Why is this inevitable? That's, if, if that's the what, if suffering is going to come, why? Why must it come? Look at, again at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There's a few reasons here why we must suffer as his people. The first is this, we must suffer to be like him. Jesus suffers. If we are going to be like Jesus, we are going to be called on to suffer too. As he died for us, we're called to lay down our lives for him. Part of the reason, like we said, he died was to be a pace setter, to be an example for us to know what it's like to suffer well. If I said to you, man, my goal in life is to be like Kyle Lowry. I want to be like Kyle Lowry, but I never picked up a basketball. You might think I'm out of my mind. If someone says, my goal in life is to be like Jesus, but they run away from suffering, in what way are we like our Christ? So we must suffer to be like Jesus. We must also suffer to gain our lives. See, the most dangerous proposition, lots of things sound dangerous in this passage. You know what the most dangerous thing is? The most dangerous proposition in here is this, is Jesus says, listen, if you live for the world, you might just get it. And that is the most dangerous thing that he says. Because if you live for the world, you might get it. And if you get it, you will lose your soul. You will lose your life. They're the same word in, in Greek. Jesus is saying you will lose the essence of who you are, of all that you live for, of what makes you you. You will be dead to God and you will be destroyed in hell. We must be willing to suffer with Christ. Our willingness to lay down our lives is the, the proof of purchase so that we actually have the ticket of God to get into his heaven. Our willingness to suffer is proof that my life is not here. My joy is not here. My glory is not here. It's on the other side. The consolation, the reward is on the other side of the grave. This is what's true of Jesus, right? Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, when the author to Hebrews is contemplating, he's saying, how was it that Jesus was able to endure his suffering? Here's how. He endured for the joy that was set before him in the presence of God. He knew that there was joy on the other side of the suffering. There was, there was a promise of pleasure on the other side that was worth losing everything here to gain. Jesus knew what Psalm 16 said. This is Psalm 16 and verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You, you, won't, you won't leave me in death. I will die, but you won't leave me there. You won't let your Holy One, your Saint, you won't let me seek corruption. Here's what he says. You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what Jesus had his eyes on, and this is what we likewise must have our eyes on so that we can endure the suffering that Christ calls us to because we want to gain our life, pleasures, fullness of joy. Which leads us to the third thing that's inevitable in this passage, which is this. It's glory. Glory must follow. Jesus is going to suffer and we're going to suffer, but on the other side of suffering, there is glory. So I always, I always get real nervous when I, um, you know, you know when your car battery dies and, and you go to hook it up or someone's car battery and you're trying to help them and it doesn't matter how many times you've done it before, at least for me, I'm a chicken. So it doesn't matter how many times you check the ordering of the wires and all these things and you're like, oh man, because you know as soon as you get that last wire on there, something is like power is going to, like anything could happen. It's, it's going to be crazy. You just don't know. Like in my mind, everything's about to explode, right? When I'm about to, but what's inevitable here is when the wires are connected, power will run. You know that. And this is, this is the reality here. When these wires are connected, when Jesus goes and when we follow, here's what we have to anticipate. Here's the, here's the power that follows. It is glory. Glory must come. And I wonder if you're like Peter. Because Peter, when Jesus says this, it's almost like he misses it. He gets so jacked up thinking about the suffering that he misses the glory in the passage. Did you see it? Look again at verse 21. Now Jesus introduces this. He says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. What glory are we talking about here? What glory must follow? Look at verse 27. This is a precious verse. Verse 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Each one of these words, man, I wish we had more time. Each one of these words you could pause on and do a deep dive on. So Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come. He's tapping in here to the biblical imagery from Daniel chapter 7. You can go back in and read it. In Daniel chapter 7, there's, there's, there's the ancient of days, God Almighty on his throne, and no one can come near the throne because it's full of glory and power and awe and splendor and might. And then there's one like a son of man who marches on up to it like he owns it. And he camps out there because that's his throne. What Jesus is saying here is he is the glorious one who owns the throne of God. The, the son of man will come, he says, with his angels. With whose angels? Excuse me? If you know the Old Testament, you know who's the angels are. You know whose servants they are. They are the servants of Almighty God. They're the servants, the messengers of Yahweh. They do his bidding and his will. Who is this guy who says they're my angels? The Son of Man with his angels will come in the glory of his Father. Guys, if I said I'm going to come in the glory of the Heavenly Father, you'll see me glorified with all the glory that belongs to God. You should stone me. That is, that is blasphemous. But for Jesus, what glory does he have? He has all the glory of the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of the Almighty God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He is the glorious one. What glory? All of God's glory is bound up with Christ. 
the glorious Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done, which is a quote from Psalm 62.12. And in Psalm 62.12, it is clear that it is Yahweh, the God of the universe, who on that last day will render to each person a just judgment according to their works. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm the one who goes to the throne of God. I'm the one who commands the angels of God like they're my own servants. I'm the one who owns all the glory of God. And I'm the one who's going to do the job of God. Either this is blasphemy of the highest order or make no mistake, the one who says these words is God Almighty himself. So what, what glory is going to follow? All the glory, all the splendor, all the majesty, all the wealth, all the honor, all the beauty of all the nations from all people in all time. And he is coming to judge or to reward according to what you have believed and according to whether or not you have followed him. And all of this is coming soon. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We'll think next week a little bit more about what that means. For now, just understand this. It means the coming of the kingdom of Christ is imminent. They're going to start to see his glory before their very eyes very, very soon. Some of them will see it when he's raised on the third day. That's glory coming for him. What, what glory is going to follow? What glory must follow for us? I, I, lo- I love this reality because it's bound up like following him into his suffering. So following him into his glory, our glory is bound up with his. And Peter, who does not get this in Matthew 16, totally goes over his head. He's trying to rebuke Jesus. He gets it by the time he writes First Peter, writing to some churches, some local churches that he knew. This is what Peter says in First Peter 1. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's not saying anymore, far be it from you, Christian, that you should suffer. He's saying, yeah, it's going to happen. It's been necessary. So you've been grieved by these trials so that, here's the result, the tested genuineness of your faith when you follow Jesus through the sufferings, your tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this, when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus returns, when he comes with the glory of his father, he will look on you who have followed him and he will reward you and give you glory and honor and praise. You have faithfully followed your master. You enter into his rest. You enter into his reward and share in his glorification. Glory must follow if Jesus is to be believed. Here's the last thing, why? Why must glory follow? Why can't it just come first? Well, for one, this has always been the plan of God. I wonder if you noticed this in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, this is the plan of the Father. Isaiah 53, 10, the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall... See his offspring. 
He'll prolong his days. The will of the Lord will what? It'll prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, there's the suffering. He shall see and be satisfied. There's glory. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, because of the suffering, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Suffering and then glory. This is the plan of the Father. It's also the pattern of Christ. Christ who fulfills it. You, you know the passage in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul marveling at the humiliation of Christ who, though he was in the form of God, he, he took on flesh, he came as a servant, he suffered and died in our place. And in Philippians 2 and verse 9, this is what the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, because Christ suffered, because he was humiliated, because he suffered in our place, therefore the result that must happen, what must follow, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory must follow suffering that's the pattern of Christ. It's also God's purpose for us. So again, Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 5, says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, here's a causal statement, so that, what happens if you humble yourself under his hand in the midst of your suffering? What happens so that at the proper time, he, God, may exalt you glory must follow see we are coming up this week to good friday when we remember the rejection the suffering the humiliation of our savior it is true he must suffer but if friday is inevitable so is sunday the resurrection and the beginning of the outpouring, the revealing of the glory of God, our glorious hope, what is inevitable? Yes, suffering is inevitable. But if it's possible to say, glory is even more inevitable for all those who trust in Christ. In our time together now, we get to rejoice in just a moment. We're, we're gonna sing, and then we're gonna hear a testimony, a declaration of how the suffering of Christ is saving sinners even now. I pray that you have heard these words, that you have seen Jesus, the one who suffered in the place of sinners, and that you too have put your trust in him so that you know as inevitable as suffering is, glory, glory must follow. Please pray with me.